Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Great. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. It's a, it's a real privilege to be able to uh, be here in Abu Dhabi and to get a chance to talk about one of my favorite things, which is uh, not just the Green Bank Telescope, which I love very much, but also some of the really cool science that's coming off of the Green Bank Telescope. So tonight what I want to do is, um, rather than go in-depth into one single scientific area, to just, as, as uh, Yossi said, to just kind of step through a few of the very recent discoveries on the telescope. I'd love to uh, spend days, uh, weeks, months, I could tell you all the different kinds of science we're doing. But in fact, just to pick, again, some of the things that we've discovered just over the past year and just kind of a little uh, smattering of different topics to give you a feel for uh, the types of science we can do with that telescope and also to just show you some of the, some of the exciting new things we're doing. Before I get started doing that, though, I want to um, just talk for a brief minute about what it means when I say we use a radio telescope to go and look at things, and more specifically, a little bit about the GBT. So the Green Bank Telescope, as you guys just heard, is the uh, world's largest fully steerable telescope. It's a 100-meter diameter dish, so that's the, uh, the dish you see right there. And it's, a, um, it's what we call an off-axis telescope. It looks just like the, uh, the little logo, not surprisingly, that we have. So all that means is that we don't have any, any steel, any metal sitting there blocking the actual dish. So our ability to catch those light waves, those photons coming in, and then they come in onto the telescope, and then they're just received right up there by the various instrumentation that we have on site. Um, not sure why all the lights came on, but... Um, so... That's, that's the GBT, and that's a, um, it's an incredibly flexible telescope, so it works for a wide variety of frequencies or wavelengths, so wavelengths going from a few meters all the way up to, to, to just a few millimeters. So when we talk about the GBT, we talk about the fact that it's a very big, very sensitive radio telescope. So the first question is, you know, kind of who cares? Why, why does it matter that you have a big sensitive radio telescope? So let me talk for just a quick minute about that sensitive idea. So we have a... Um, very large diameter dish, so 100 meter diameter dish. That means it can collect a heck of a lot of light waves, a lot of photons onto this dish. The reason we do that is the types of objects, the types of things that radio astronomers study are very, very faint. So radio astronomy typically works in units of what we call Janskys. One Jansky is 10 to the minus 26 watts per meter squared per hertz. Radio astronomy, um, with the GBT, we have a big sensitive telescope, we like to work in millijanskys or even microjanskys. So that means that we're working in units of 10 to the minus 32 watts per meter squared per hertz. So that's a zero with a whole slew of zeros after it and then a one down there at the very, very end. Um, it's a really small number, that's why you need a really sensitive telescope. Um, and if you want to think about it in terms of more everyday things, if for those of you that aren't like me and don't think about life in terms of watts per meter squared per hertz, you can actually think about something like this. So, so the energy we measure with the GBT is vastly smaller than the energy it takes for a single snowflake to land on the ground. Another way to think of it is if you take a, a, a typical light bulb, just your normal 60-watt light bulb, and you actually go and you, and you light that light bulb up, that light bulb is about 2 billion times brighter than the types of things we're studying with the GBT. So that's why we have a very, very sensitive dish. We really need that to go out and to study these, these astrophysical phenomena that we want to study in, in order to understand them. So that's the sensitive and the big part of that entire description. The other part of this thing that's a little bit different, maybe than any of you that have uh, thought much about astronomy before, is that, is that radio world word. What does it mean to go out and to, to use a radio telescope? And so... If you're not an astronomer and you think about astronomy, most people, I certainly did for a very long time, um, think about astronomy in terms of somebody like Galileo, where you go out there and you've got this nice little telescope and you sit down and you have a beautiful evening where you're out, you're looking at the sky with your telescope, you get very nice images. Um, typically in, in Galileo's time, at least you actually draw a picture of what you see and, and he did great science that way. Modern astronomy, even modern optical astronomy doesn't really work like that. So any professional telescope out there and even um, many of the, the amateur astronomers out there, actually, maybe they'll look through their telescope occasionally if they're doing optical astronomy. But in practice, most of the time, their telescope is hooked up to some kind of, of camera and then onto their computer. 
And the reason you do that is twofold. One is with a camera, you can actually integrate longer and get a much more sensitive image. So your eye will see what it sees. It gets the photons that come in. That's, that's all it can register. But you can set up your, your camera system to sit there and integrate for, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, as long as you want, and build up a very sensitive image of the sky. So that's one reason that people tend to use computers and cameras to look at things. The other reason, though, has to do with wavelength. Your eye has a very limited view. It can only see visible wavelengths. By hooking a, a um, computer up and a, and a camera up to this, you can actually start to look at wavelengths that are beyond what your eye can see. And you think about this, and you think about most of the, uh, the modern astronomy that you see, the big, beautiful pictures you see, like from the Hubble Space Telescope. You know, NASA has an absolutely amazing public relations group that just put out these, these just gorgeous astronomy images all the time. Well, the, the images are great. You get great science from them. You get great appreciation for astronomy from them. But the reality is when you look at these big, beautiful images from Hubble, your eye couldn't see that either. So it's already starting to show you things outside of the wavelength of what your eye can see. So this is one that Hubble just released, uh, I think, yesterday. It's a beautiful spiral galaxy out there. And unfortunately, if you were to be able to uh, somehow just look at that galaxy with your eye, if you had a big enough uh, telescope, you would never quite see this image. So this is what we call a false cover color image, where they've chosen the colors to help you understand what they're seeing. So it's not false color to fool you, it's just false color to give you a good feel for what, what you would see if your eyes were capable of seeing at those wavelengths. Radio astronomy is absolutely no different than that, we're just at the more extreme end. So if you look at this, you can see where you've got the, the, uh, the visible wavelengths sitting in there. And then most modern telescopes that astronomers use, if you think about what we call optical, I'll put that in quotes, are actually working outside of that visible as well. They move into the infrared, move a little bit into the ultraviolet. Radio astronomy is just going down to the longer wavelengths there. So the GBT, which you can see right here, um, works down, like I said earlier, at wavelengths that go anywhere from a few meters long uh, to a few millimeters long. So that's, that's the idea behind a radio telescope. Really no different than optical. Longer wavelengths, we get really big telescopes, so they look really impressive too at the same time. So that's the idea behind it. Um, the next big question I often get when I try to explain this to people, and I start to say, okay, so you look at radio waves, is really why bother? You know, why do we need to go to all these different wavelengths to try to understand the universe? And one of my favorite um, ways of thinking about that is that from this poster that NASA actually made quite a few years ago, uh, looking at our own Milky Way galaxy. So these are images taken from a variety of different telescopes here on Earth, and they're looking through the, the center of the Milky Way. So we're sitting out on the edge. So it's looking through the center of the Milky Way and out through the, uh, the spiral arms over there. So you really start to get a look at it. And when you look at this, you can see the image of the Milky Way galaxy, this beautiful image right here in what we call the optical. So this is roughly the, uh, the visual wavelength. And you can see lots of uh, great information in this image. You can see stars and you can see dust. Dust is the black stuff. It's not that there aren't any stars where the black is. It's just that the dust is actually absorbing the starlight so you don't get to see it. So that's your, your beautiful um, optical image of the Milky Way. But if you start to look and you start to move to other wavelengths, you start to see radically different phenomena. For example, if you move from the optical up to, say, these infrared, then instead of seeing your stars, you're actually starting to see that dust that's out there in the universe. And then if you move from the infrared, going to our longer wavelengths here, up into the radio area that I'm going to spend most of my time talking about, you start to see things like the gas, in this case, the molecular hydrogen and the atomic hydrogen. So by going to different wavelengths, you're basically able to, to explore completely different physical phenomena that's connected. And astronomers desperately need to do this. And the reason astronomers need to do this is we're different than a lot of the physical sciences out there. So um, I actually got my degree in physics. And in physics, what most people did was they developed experiments, and then they did those experiments. And then they would change the conditions for their experiments to keep testing things over and over again to try to understand and make sure that they really understand physically what was happening in those experiments. In astronomy, we don't get to do that. We don't get to go build a couple more galaxies and see what's going to happen with those galaxies. So instead, we have to use every single tool we have available to sit there and to, to probe into these astrophysical objects to try to really get a feel for what's going on with them. So that's why we go to the different wavelengths. It gives us a good view of all of the different physical phenomena, and that allows us to really test our different theories about what's happening with it. So that's kind of my, my quick primer on, uh, on radio astronomy and kind of why we're doing radio astronomy. And so now I want to spend, like I said, the rest of my, my time up here just talking to you guys a little bit about some of the neat discoveries we've been doing with the GBT. So one of the first things people think about when you think about astronomy is you start to think about galaxies. We do a lot of studying of galaxies and trying to understand galaxies. 
And one of the areas that the GBT has been heavily involved in since it was uh, uh, first constructed and first commissioned is trying to look at galaxy formation and galaxy evolution. Now, when we talk about all of this, again, being astronomers, we have to use every tool we have available. So one of the big things that astronomers like to do is we use uh, computer simulations, just like every other scientific field, to try to understand what's going on within something. And the way these computer simulations are built is you go, you get all the data you possibly have, you take your absolute best theories you have, and you combine them all in together, typically on the absolute best computer you can get your hands on, to try to, to, to build a simulation where you're basing it off of your data, but a really good simulation is actually going to move forward and give you some predictions that you can test. So what you're seeing in this simulation, and let me emphasize over and over again, this is a computer simulation, is um, basically it's showing us the idea of galaxies and how galaxies could be gathering together and as, as the universe forms. So the big bright areas that you're looking at are, are big collections of lots and lots of galaxies there. And then as you go out, you see these things we call the cosmic web. So these are just these, uh, uh, in this case, uh, showing us where the gas is distrib distributed in between other little smaller and bigger clumps of galaxies. So this is the idea, this is the belief based off our best possible theories of what the universe should look like. If you want to blow this up and look into more detail there, you can actually go into one of those little clumps of galaxies, again with the simulation, to try, try to see, understand what could be going on in between those galaxies. So here you're seeing um, time going forward, and you see up in the corner there, you see a bunch of galaxies interacting with each other. They're literally just kind of bumping along into each other, kind of like kids when they all go someplace. They kind of get near and go away from each other. The difference is with galaxies, galaxies have lots of gas and dust and things. And so as they get near each other, gravitationally, they're pulling on each other. And they're creating, again, this cosmic web in between the galaxies. Then moving on with these simulations, this is all the same simulation set that you're looking at right now, just getting closer and closer in on it. You can even use these to now start to try to look at the individual galaxies. What do the simulations say about this? Why is all this important? Because again, we're taking our best possible theories. And now what I've just shown you is a whole slew of different predictions that these simulations have made. So they've said, if your theories are right, then you should be able to start to look at this. You should be able to go out and look and look for galaxies to see if they're grouping and laying out in these, in these clumps and then these, in these little strings. And you can actually go out and look for the gas that I just showed you and to see if that gas is spreading out between the different galaxies. And so that's a couple of the experiments that were just done on the GBT recently. Uh, one of them was uh, published just, uh, just last year, um, going out to look at the, the galaxies and the distribution of galaxies in the local universe. This is work done by Brent Tully and Helene uh, Courtois, where they used the GBT as well as a couple other telescopes around the world to go and literally make a three-dimensional map of all the galaxies they could find in what we call our, our local supercluster. So this is all the galaxies around the Milky Way galaxy itself. And then they took that and they made a map of it. They literally just made a map showing where all these galaxies are. And then they added one more piece because they're in radio astronomy, so we get to do this, which is they actually added the velocity of these galaxies. How, what kind of motion do these galaxies have? And they created this map um, and this supergroup they call uh, Launakea. And so all these little dots you see around here are different individual galaxies. The big red dot is us, just so we know where we are in this whole universe. And then the lines that you're seeing are actually the, the motion, the distribution as, as the galaxies, where they're trying to go to, where, where they see these clumps trying to get. And what's really exciting about this is it looks a lot like those simulations. So this is the first time we've really been able to look out in our local universe and say, hey, you know, they, they made these predictions about where galaxies should lie and where the, where the matter should be distributed. And frankly, if you look at this and you look at the simulations, they're not exactly the same, but they're pretty close. You have these big clumps of galaxies and then you have a lot of distributed galaxies going along these individual filaments, and you have galaxy motion along these filaments, exactly like was predicted in those simulations. So that was one piece of the simulations. And then, and then the other piece that we looked at recently with the GBT goes back to that image I just showed you of the galaxies all interacting together and pulling on each other and things like that. Uh, we can't watch that interaction. We don't have the, the, the millions and billions of years to do it, but we can go out and look at different galaxy clusters to try to understand it. The problem with doing that is when you go and you look for these, these filaments in between the galaxies, they're very, very diffuse. The, the gas density is very, very low. So you need a really big telescope that's capable of doing that. And fortunately, the GBT is. And so this is a, a recent study done looking at two nearby galaxies. That's M31 and M33. And what you see here is uh, you see some stars in the background, the little white dots. 
The galaxies themselves are the blue pieces. That's just the, uh, the gas of those galaxies, because as radio astronomers, we always like to show radio astronomy pictures. But the important part is the, is the reddish stuff you see in between. So that was the recent GBT observations, going out to literally look to see if there's any gaseous connection between the two galaxies. And what you can see is there's clearly a nice little stream of gas going, leading from this galaxy, and certainly tending towards this other galaxy down here. If you could see it on the screen, it goes all the way down to about right here on this. So it's really a clear indication of this cosmic web. Now, it doesn't quite connect. And the reason it doesn't quite connect is most likely not because the gas doesn't connect. But even with a big telescope like the GBT, it still can take many hundreds, if not thousands of hours to get down to these, these low densities. And so it's simply a matter of having a lot of great science to do on the telescope and not being able to devote quite enough time there. Um, we're working on some new instruments on the GBT that'll give us a little bit more sensitivity for maps like this, and hopefully we'll be able to finally see that. But it's really exciting. This is the first time ever that we've been able to not just use a simulation and predict the cosmic web, but to actually go out and to measure it, to see it really happening out there. And it's the first real proof that we've ever had that this, this web really exists. So that's kind of galaxy formation. Like I said, I want to step through a couple different, uh, different topics for you guys. And so going from galaxies, another thing you often think about, certainly we all think about when we, when we think about astronomy, is looking at stars and star formation and things like that. And again, I want to talk to you about some of, the, some of the recent discoveries that we've had with the GBT with this. Now, before I get into that, I want to make sure everybody understands we actually have a pretty good idea of the general big picture of star formation. We have a pretty good idea of understanding how it is stars form overall. So you start off over here in the, uh, the top left, you got a big old cloud of gas and dust out there. And then over time, that gas and dust starts to collapse downwards, starts to coalesce, and you get these, these clumps forming. It's these little dense cores with a clumpy material around it. And then if you focus in on one of those dense cores, we know that you'll get a star in the middle, and then you'll typically get a bunch of uh, um, gas and dust spinning around that. And then over time, that gas and dust will do the same type of thing, and it'll start to form into planets. Now you've got the solar system right there. Over time, enough time again, that star will either die out or in some cases may go supernova. It'll explode, you'll get a bunch more gas and dust, and you get to start the whole process over again. So the big picture we, we know pretty well. We've been able to test this. We have a very good feel for it. But what we really want to do now is to try to delve into this a little bit more and start to look at, at the details of this and start to try to understand specifically what's happening in here. What's happening when you go and you start to probe into these clouds and try to understand what's, what's going on with the stars. And so one of the, uh, well, a whole bunch of the recent experiments that have happened with the GBT have been exactly that idea. Let's go and look whether you've got a bunch of uh, gas. This is a real image. And let's go look at the difference between star formation when you've got a high density of gas, so a whole bunch of gas there, and star formation when you've got very little gas, just all in the same part of the sky, but just different, different densities, and see what we can find out from that. So a couple of the experiments that have been going on here, one of them, uh, this is a recent one, Looking at um, Orion, so this is actually, um, if you look up at the sky and you find Orion, this is, this is an image from part of where he is up there. And this is a, an image showing you, again, the optical image, so you got nice little stars on there. And then the blue is the, the gas, just uh, what we call the uh, atomic uh, hydrogen sitting around this area. And then if you go into the details, the orange that you see here is ammonia, so that's NH2. And why ammonia? Because ammonia happens to be an excellent tracer of star formation. So where you find ammonia, you know you've got, a lot of, you've got stars forming at that point. And so we use these tracers in astronomy to help us probe deep down into these, into these different clouds. And so this is, uh, this is the image they took. And then you can take this and start looking at the details of it. And so again, on the right, uh, you're just seeing the, uh, the exact same image, just blown up a little bit. And then sitting on top of it are some little contours where they're looking to see, you know, where do we see these clumps? Where do we see these high-density clumps of star formation? So this is letting us literally go in and image, essentially, where the star formation is exactly occurring within this, within this uh, um, object. We've done this study a number of different ways because scientists have to test over and over and over again to try to look at things. So this is a, a similar map. In this case, we're actually looking at the um, uh, Perseus molecular cloud. So over on your right, you're seeing a lot of the uh, molecular gas in that. And then again, going to look in this case at NH3 instead of NH2, but going to look at another uh, one of these high, high um, tracers of, of star formation out there. And you can see on the left, what we get is something that looks very, very different 
than what we get when we look at the molecular gas. You see a bunch of really clumpy material in there, just a bunch of really circular clumps. Again, that's showing a star formation. So we're actually peering in and looking at these stars forming. So we're able to use the GBT to get into this high level of detail and to start to try to answer the questions that I was just asking, which is what's going on with star formation. And all of these studies build up. You know, it takes a few years to get enough data for everybody to really believe you to uh, um, uh, results that I think are, are published now. They're certainly on their way to getting, getting published, which is looking at exactly this question I asked first. What happens to star formation in these different regions? And what they're able to tell you now is it's very, very different. So if you go to these, these high-density regions where you got lots of, of dense um, gas out there, you get star formation coming on where, where the gas is actually coming in almost kind of running together. So it's coalescing very, very quickly. You get a whole lot of stars forming, and they're forming fast. So you're able to actually, you know, you get stars forming at a very rapid rate in these areas. If you move on to the lower-density regions like you have over here, first off, um, you get... a uh, Star formation going along these little gaseous filaments, which is what we expected, but it's, it's good to see it here. And then secondly, what they found, though, what the, what the new discovery is, is that in these lower density regions, the star formation is vastly slower. You have what we call quasi-static uh, collapse. So quasi-static means it's happening so slowly, it looks like it's almost static, like it's almost stationary. So out in those regions, you have just individual stars forming, and they're forming very, very slowly. In the high-density regions, you get a lot of stars forming, and they're storming very, very quickly. So just by going in and looking at these gas tracers and looking where the stars are forming, we're able to make these measurements and really start to, again, delve into the areas, into, into the star formation regions, and start to get just um, brand new looks into what's going on within these galaxies. So moving down, again, going back to this chart again, so you know, just talking about what was going on here and starting to be able to really um, probe the different environments of what's going on with star formation. And so from star formation, then the next, the next obvious thing to start looking at is planets and what happens as planets start to form and what goes on with planetary formation. There's a lot of different ways you can look at planetary formation. There's lots of different ways we study it. And I want to just spend a few minutes talking about um, two of those ways that we look at planetary formation. So the first one is actually going in and starting to look at this, this dust itself, trying to study the dust and, and the dust properties within uh, planetary formation. And then the second way that we, we do it is to take advantage of the fact that we happen to live in the solar system and we have planets all around us and to actually study those planets. <coughs> so one of, the, uh, one of the really neat discoveries that the GBT has had recently is going out and using uh, one of what we call a, a camera or a, a multi-pixel instrument that we have on the GBT to go out and, like I said, to look at the dust where planets are starting to form. And when we go out and do that, uh, we, can, we can make, again, beautiful images like this. So uh, the, the green bank image is this, this orange stuff, and we like to put it in context. And so we put it in a context showing you a lot of the gas and the stars around this region. So this was a map, again, to go back to Orion, the, the same area of the sky that we've been looking at. And in this case, to try to go to those star-forming regions and look at the gas around where the stars are to try to look at the planets themselves. We've always had a good idea of planetary formation. You know, we know you got a lot of gas, or a lot of dust, sorry, and that dust slowly um, formed together and gravitationally would, would go ahead and start to form planets. So we knew that was the case. We thought we had a pretty good feel for it. Um, but then we turned this, uh, what was actually a brand new instrument on the GBT, um, to, to make a study. And what they found was actually very, very surprising. What they discovered is we don't have these, these little um, dust particles that are about a micron big, big as people had previously thought. Instead, we have essentially pebble-sized amounts of dust, things anywhere from about a millimeter big to about a centimeter big out in these star-forming regions. So, so little chunks of dust. And what that means is that now instead of just having these... Um, these uh, very, very fine dust particles very slowly coalescing together until they get big enough to start having a real gravitational pull. You've got particles, you've got, you've got pebbles essentially banging together, coalescing together. And so once again, kind of like with the star formation, you're having planetary formation that's going on much faster than people had thought. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a kickstart to planet formation discovering this. And again, it's a discovery we could only make by our ability to go in and look at these wavelengths to actually be able to, to measure the dust through the rest of this. So that was just a, a really cool discovery, um, trying to understand again what's going on and, and finding out that we had just, just vastly bigger dust grains than we'd previously thought. 
The other way we look at planets, like I said, is to go out and to, to turn into our own solar system. Now, there's a bunch of ways we can study planets, and we can certainly turn the GBT to just look at the planets themselves and to start to look at the different types of gas and molecules we can see on the planets. We can do that with um, comets and other objects, asteroids as well. We've done that a lot, but like I said, I wanted to talk to you guys about recent studies found with the GBT. So what I want to show you um, next is something that's a little bit different than just normally turning our telescope and looking at it. So one of the ways we can study nearby objects, um, where nearby in astronomy world is, is things within the solar system, at least for this, for this talk, is to go out and to actually, um, rather than just passively look at it, we can go out and we can actually bounce a radar system off it. Now, the GBT is a passive telescope. We only listen. We don't have the ability to actually transmit any signals whatsoever. But there are other telescopes out there that actually can transmit, and so they, can, they have pretty powerful transmitters that go out. That includes the Arecibo Telescope down in Puerto Rico, as well as a couple of telescopes out in uh, California in the western U.S. So the GBT, or sorry, the, the Arecibo Telescope has a radar system, uh, a couple radar systems, but their most powerful is one that gives off energy at 12 centimeters. So it's 12 centimeter wavelength, and it's ridiculously powerful. So this is a one megawatt transmitter um, that, that Arecibo has. And for most of the time Arecibo uses it, they just, they take that transmitter, they bounce it off some uh, object that they're interested in looking at, and then they receive the signal back again. But periodically, they want to increase their sensitivity and increase their resolution. And if they want to do that, so they want to get a higher resolution image and a more sensitive image, they'll talk to us. And in these cases, what happens is rather than Arecibo receiving the signal back again, they'll bounce the signal off an object, and then the GBT gets to receive that signal. So that's, again, just a way to increase your resolution, increase the, the overall sensitivity you get when you're doing your observations. So just in the past, I think about a, a month ago, we had a recent uh, image that was, uh, that was uh, completed and released out of the moon doing this. So this is an incredibly high-resolution image of the moon. The resolution is typically about uh, three to five meters of resolution, and it gives you just an absolutely beautiful image of the moon. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. The next question is, well, that's great, but I've seen you know, Hubble Space Telescope images that look kind of like that, so why did we need to bother with this technique? In fact, this is uh, uh, very similar in terms of resolution to the Hubble Space Telescope images. We have a, a very similar uh, spatial resolution of the moon with this, but the big difference goes back to what I said before. Within astronomy, you always want to go and look at various wavelengths to try to understand things well. And in this case, what's happening is when you use the Hubble Space Telescope to go and make an observation, the Hubble Space Telescope will go out and it gets a very nice image showing you what the surface of the moon looks like. It's fantastic. It teaches us a lot about what the surface is, and you can do a lot of science with that image. When you go and bounce a radar off the moon, that radar actually penetrates the moon's dust. So it'll penetrate down anywhere from a few meters down to about 15 meters of dust on the moon's surface, until it, it bounces off the actual rock of the moon. And so you're getting, again, an image that might look similar, but in practice, when you align the two, a lot of the features will be quite different. And so you put the two together, and it actually gives you a feel for what the lunar surface looks like, what the, what the dust is on the lunar surface, as well as what the rock underneath that dust starts to look like. Why you want to know that? Well, first, it just teaches you a lot about the moon. It teaches you about, allows you to do science, trying to understand how the, how the moon is formed, how the moon has changed over time. Another big reason that this is done is because if, say, you wanted to uh, land a spacecraft on the moon, you don't want to end up landing that spacecraft in an area where it's going to get mired in the dust. You want to make sure you're going to a place where you understand exactly, well, unless you want to study the dust, I guess, where, where you actually uh, um, are going to be able to land onto a surface. So this has been a, a really fantastic study of the moon. I should add one last thing, too. Uh, one of the, uh, the funny features of these is because we're working with radar, these aren't actual shadows. These are just areas where, for whatever reason, we didn't get as much data as we did in the other spots. But it's by far the, uh, the highest and best resolution image of the, of the lunar rocky surface that's, that's ever existed. So the same technique, it's, it can be used for the moon. It can actually be used a little bit to go out to some of the farther planets. But the other most common way we use this radar technique is to try to understand some of the, the things like asteroids that are coming through our own solar system. So if you go out and uh, use this technique, now this is uh, more typically done in our case with uh, the, the telescopes out in California uh, at, Jet, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but we can use these to go out again and to try to study asteroids. 
Once more, the GBT isn't involved in a lot of their studies. Typically, uh, JPL will go out, transmit, and receive the signal themselves. But whenever they have an object of extreme interest, they ask us to get involved. And extreme interest means one of two things. Either it means that it's just a really unusual object, and I'll get to show you guys one of those a bit later on, or it's something that's coming very close. So anytime you have an object that's coming, uh, particularly uh, between the Earth and the Moon, scientists, everybody wants to know as much about that object as they possibly can. And using ra these radar techniques, we're able to actually get the, the best uh, possible information about the dynamics of that asteroid, which lets us then know whether or not the asteroid's going to come too close to the Earth and be a concern to any of the Earth's satellites or, or anything like that. This particular image is just one of my favorites that we've taken with the GBT. And the reason it's one of my favorites is it's a very clear image of what's going on with this asteroid. So this is a time sequence. So it goes along the top and comes down like this. It's taken over time. And first you can see the asteroid. It's a pretty typical just ball of, of uh, um, pebbles and so forth. But what's, what's fun about this one is this little object here. So this is a binary asteroid. They, they exist out there. There's actually quite a few of them. And this one just has this little teeny companion that you can see going over time is raising up from the front of it until it slowly hits the peak of its orbit and starts to go back down. So this asteroid has is, is got this own, its own little moon essentially going around it. And this is, again, something that the radar techniques make very, very clear, and you're able to go and you're able to see the, uh, the dynamics of that. So that was a, that was a pretty fun uh, discovery. So switching topics again, one more time, um, to go into uh, one more field. Now this is moving away from typically when you think about astronomy and you think about uh, galaxies, stars, and so forth. But one of the big areas that the GBT has been involved in uh, ever since it's, it was first commissioned and remains heavily involved in now is moving over to the idea of chemistry. So you don't think about chemistry too much when you think about astronomy, but it is certainly a Big field in astronomy, and I would say a, a growing, rapidly growing field within astronomy. So astrochemistry is just what it sounds like. It's going out and trying to understand the, the chemical content of the universe, of the stuff away from the Earth. And you do this for a whole slew of different reasons, um, but two of the ones that I want to talk about today are both using this, uh, this uh, chemical survey of the universe to understand uh, what types of physical phenomena that we see out in the universe that can be explained through complex uh, chemistry and complex molecules, and the other one, of course, is to try to understand and try to tie the type of chemistry we see out there to the type of chemistry we know we need here on Earth to create life. So the first piece of that, going out and uh, looking at uh, uh, trying to understand the physical phenomena, um, goes about like this. So we know for a fact that when we go out and we look at the Milky Way and other galaxies, we see this, uh, this glow in the infrared. We see this overall glow in this. And we've um, hypothesized, a very good hypothesis, that all of this glow actually comes from these dust particles called um, uh, PAH particles. And so we know about this. The problem with this whole idea is that PAH particles are very, very difficult to detect. It just turns out that the energies that they give off, combined with the amount of energy they give off, both the wavelength and the amount of energy they give off, makes it nearly impossible for us to detect these things on Earth, and certainly impossible with any of the instrumentation we have. That's the bad news. The good news is that just like all molecules out there, they are, there's always some uh, cousin to that molecule that tends to trace the molecule very, very closely and let you know what's going on with it. And in this case, there happens to be a molecule called benzyl nitrile that sits out there with the PAH mo molecules. And if you can find benzyl nitrile, you know you've got PAH molecules out there as well. So people turned the GBT to do this um, very recently and wanted to go and just see if they could find this. And they actually turned the GBT. Again, we're out. We're looking in these dusty areas. So in this case, they looked out um, in, a, in what we call a dust cloud. So this is an area, again, you can find them optically, like you can see here, just by the fact that the dust has absorbed the starlight. And so it looks like a black space in the sky. And so when they turned the GBT to it, they, uh, they, they detected it. It was a fantastic detection. Now, before I um, uh, move on from this, so I want you to understand a little bit about what it means to make a detection in astrochemistry. So the good news is that all chemicals out there, they go through some kind of energy transitions and they give off energy at different wavelengths. That's great. The bad news is there's lots of stuff out there in the universe. There's lots and lots of different types of molecules and different type of, of um, atoms out in the universe, and all of them are giving off energy. So if you say, for example, I want to go detect benzyl nitrile in space, that's wonderful. You can go try to do that. 
And you can even sit there in the lab and say, well, I know that benzyl nitrile gives off energy at a given frequency or a given wavelength. If you just go and detect something there, the problem is you can't guarantee that you've actually detected benzyl nitrile. You might have, or you might have detected the energy transition line from some other chemical, maybe at, the, at what we call the rest, so nearby, or maybe, remember, the crazy thing is the universe, as you go farther away in the universe, it's expanding, so that actually can change the frequency you're looking at. So the only way you can really say I've detected a new molecule in space is to say, all right, well, every molecule is not going to give off energy at any one wavelength. They have their own little signature, a little fingerprint. And that fingerprint says that it's going to give it off at a whole bunch of different wavelengths, all dependent upon the types of atoms that are combined together and the way in which those atoms are combined together. It's a very predictable thing. You can sit in a, chem in a chemistry lab and they can tell you that, an atom, uh, that a molecule like benzyl nitrile should give off energy at, at these various wavelengths. And so typically when you're doing astrochemistry, you want to go out, you want to detect these things. You go look and your hope is to find two or three of these signature lines. And when you find two or three, you can say, hey, you know, I think I did it. I think I detected this. Well, apparently benzyl nitrile really wanted to be detected because they went out and they did this and they detected nine of the lines out there. So this is about as strong a detection as you can possibly say. This is saying, you know, look, I got your fingerprints on all five of your fingers out there. This is definitely you. In this case, this is definitely benzyl nitrile. And it's a really neat molecule. It's, a, it's what they call a ring molecule, so it makes this nice little ring. But again, this is by far the best detection we've had. And this is uh, the indicator that, again, this theory about the PAH molecules being out in space and causing this infrared glow is in fact correct because we've now finally uh, detected the cousins of the PAHs and so we know what's going on in there. So like I said, that's one of the reasons uh, that people do astrochemistry. I just want to mention the other reason to you guys and that's one of the fun, fun reasons, one of the, one of the things people like to hear a lot about when we talk about astronomy and that is the idea of, of using these, uh, these chemical mo molecules out in space to try to understand a little bit more about ourselves. So when you think about life on Earth, one of the things we know is that it takes very complex molecules to create life. We know that for a fact. We're all very complex, and the molecules that, that create us are very complex. So one of the things that astronomers like to ask is the question of, well, how common are these complex molecules out there? So is it something that you just get these, these uh, what we call prebiotic or pre-life molecules and these complex molecules that we need, like sugar, that they only exist here on Earth? Is there something unique about the Earth that causes these molecules to get created? Or do they exist out there and maybe it's just something about Earth that allows them to, to form together into life? And so when the GBT first was commissioned, one of the very first things that was done with it was to try to make a census of these molecules. Now it's not a new field. The idea of going out and doing astrochemistry has been around um, for a very, very long time, for longer than I've been around. Um, but in the past, before the GBT, what was typically done was people would sit and, and the chemists would say, okay, we think you should see these molecules out in space and they're going to uh, give you a, a give off this much energy at these wavelengths, go look for them. And astronomers would go out and either say we found them or we didn't find them. When the GBT came online, people say, you know, we could turn this around. We now have an instrument with a very wide frequency range um, that's able to look at uh, very high resolution so we can actually see the spectral lines very well. And so they turned this idea around, and instead of waiting for the chemist to tell them what they should be able to find, they just said, we're going to go see what we can see and see, what we, um, see what's out there. We've had a ton of discoveries that way, and some, of the, some really exciting discoveries, like, uh, like uh, basic sugar in space, was made with the GBT. But I wanted to mention just uh, uh, one of our um, recent really exciting discoveries, again, and this is all going out to try to understand um, what's out there in the universe and what we can find in terms of the stuff that you need to make life. How common is it out there? So the recent discovery, this was just announced in uh, January with the GBT, was a discovery of what's called a chiral molecule out in space. So I'm sure all of you guys are excited about that, and I can just stop there. You all know what chiral molecules are, and we can just, we can just move on. Um, for those of you like me, though, that didn't actually know what that meant when I was first called and, and told that this was happening, um, let me explain a little bit about what chirality is. So the idea of chirality is handedness. So you have a left hand and a right hand, and your left hand and your right hand are not the same, but they're mirror images of each other. So your left hand and your right hand look like this, and you can put one up to the mirror and it's going to look like your other hand. Molecules do the exact same thing. So you have molecules out there that also have handedness, and so they're the mirror image of each other. Now why does this matter? Well, it's just like your hands. My right hand cannot shake my left hand properly. It doesn't work. You need a right hand to shake your right hand, and you need a left hand to shake your left hand, and that's just the way it is. Molecules work the same way. 
these, these chiral molecules, you know, your left-handed and your right-handed molecules will actually form bonds differently and with other different molecules than they would otherwise. So chirality is something that we've known about for a long time. It's, it's not certainly not a new discovery of the GBT. Um, so we've known that molecules were, had this handedness to them. And equally as importantly, we knew that life required handedness in these molecules. This was a fact we knew. So the big question we wanted to ask then was, well, can we find these chiral molecules in space? Again, can we find these indicators of life somewhere out there in space? And in uh, January, we were able to announce that, yes, we did. So we first had the first ever discovery of and this, uh, actually propylene oxide in space. And so these are chiral molecules out there in space. So this is really exciting because it means not only have we founded these, so once again, one of these indicators of life is sitting out there um, in the universe, but now we can start to, to study these out in the universe away from the Earth. And so we have a whole new laboratory, essentially, to study these chiral molecules in, to try to understand them, to try to understand what makes them chiral molecules. So this is a, a really, really exciting uh, uh, discovery within the world of astrochemistry. So those are two recent discoveries with astrochemistry. I just want to emphasize, though, that this is, a, um, in spite of the fact it's not something you think about with radio astronomy very often, the idea of astrochemistry has been around for a long time. Um, within Green Bank itself, we've had the, the, the first ever discovery, just looking back in time a little bit, of uh, complex molecules out there in space, in this case from aldehyde. This was from back in 1969. We had that discovery. Um, but these discoveries just continue on and on and on. So people are, are turning the telescopes as fast as we can make them sensitive enough to do this to try to go out and to try to look for these molecules in space. And the reason, again, is twofold. First off, it's just our own desire to understand the universe and understand what's out there. And that helps us understand all the different physical properties we see. But second, again, we get really excited by the idea of if we can understand what's out there in space, we can start to understand how we got here. If we can go out into space and look for these complex molecules, look for these prebiotic molecules, we can use that to try to understand potentially how we got here on Earth. Now, the thing I want to emphasize to you as we start to look at all this is, is everything I just talked about, all these are just indicators of the possibility of the creation of life. This doesn't say we're not out there looking for life when we're doing astrochemistry. We're going out and we're looking for the stuff you need to create life when we do astrochemistry. If you want to go out and actually look for life when you're doing astronomy, you have to think of it slightly different. So there's a couple ways you can do that. So you say, all right, so now we know we got the stuff for life. I want to, you know, let's just, let's just take this the next big step. En enough of looking for that. I want to just go find life in the universe. So how do you do that? Well, there's a couple ways. You can go out into space and try to find life. There aren't any clear indicators of life. You can look for things like oxygen and things like that to say we would have the ability to have life. But if you really wanted to go and say detect it, one way would be to get in a spaceship and, and to go find it. Um, unfortunately, we're not anywhere near at that level yet. We haven't made it to uh, anywhere but, but the moon yet, so we're certainly not ready to start heading off to other solar systems and look for life. So the other way you can do that is to go and look for intelligent life. And looking for intelligent life is a, a fairly straightforward idea, at least, even if the actual practice is complex. And again, this is something that Green Bank has been involved in for a very, very long time, back to some of the earliest days of this. So back in the early 1960s, there was a guy who just got his PhD. His name was Frank Drake, and he decided to move to Green Bank for a while, and he got a, he got a job there, fortunately for all of us. And while he was in Green Bank, Frank did a lot of things, a lot of really fantastic scientific discoveries. But one of the things that he did that he's probably the best known for is at that time, there was a lot of people, not Frank was not alone in this, talking about the idea of going to look for intelligent life in the universe. And so Frank decided to gather them all together. Green Bank is a great place for a workshop because it's pretty isolated and there's not a lot to do but talk to each other there. And so he got everybody together up in a lounge that's now called the, the Drake Lounge. And he sat down and he said, let's come up with a way to scientifically define the probability of discovering intelligent life. And so that's the equation he came up with. This is it. This is the Drake equation right there. And it's just a, a number of factors put together saying, you know, what's the probability of um, having Earth-like planets? What's the number of stars in the universe? And, and piecing all that together into just a scientific equation to try to define what it'll take to, to find life. The other big thing that, that Frank did while he was in Green Bank was he actually did the first radio search for um, intelligent life. So this is the idea of looking out to see if he could see a radio signal that indicates life out there. And he did that using this telescope here. This is our 85-foot telescope, also known as the Tatel telescope. 
Um, obviously, he didn't find anything. We wouldn't still be talking about whether or not it's out there right now. But it was a really exciting experiment that he did. And in this experiment that was continued in a variety of different ways for a long time on the Greenbank site, um, using a number of our different telescopes. However, from about the mid-1990s onward, that uh, the interest in uh, using money to actually go and do these searches was fading. So the number of searches out for, for SETI after about the mid-1990s was really starting to go down. And the number of searches had, had declined to a number of, of, of fairly small things going on, like the SETI at Home Experiment at Arecibo, a couple small experiments with the GBT, things like that. Um, fortunately, though, just in the past few years, all of that changed. So just a few years ago, an organization was created called uh, Breakthrough Listen. This is an offshoot of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation, which is about five years old. Uh, Breakthrough Prize Foundation is, is uh, headed by Yuri Milner. And so Breakthrough Listen was created with the idea of going out and let's, let's do an extensive and very careful search in the universe to see if we can find signs of intelligent life. Now, I'm being very specific on intelligent because we're actually looking for artificial signals now. We're not looking for natural signals anymore. So this is a, a minimum 10-year search that they're going primarily in the radio wavelengths, but also in the optical wavelengths. So like I said, it's going to be the most extensive survey ever. And what's also fun about this search is all of the data that they're collecting, they're making it publicly available. So it's publicly available if you decide you want to do your own extensive search for intelligent life, but it's also available for astronomers. For people that want to use the data to go and look for natural phenomena, they can use this data to do that. So that's the basic idea of it. But what's also been really interesting, um, and to go back to my theme about talking about some of the, the recent discoveries with the GBT, is the Breakthrough Listen team has been able to turn the GBT to go look at some of the more unusual phenomena that's out there in the universe. So you know, if you're going out and you're trying to say, is there intelligent life out there? You really have to go out and start to look around a little bit and say, well, you know, yes, we can go and point in stars and things like that, but let's also just go and look at unusual phenomena to see what we can see there, to see if maybe we're seeing signs that we just didn't pay enough attention to before. So one of the recent uh, experiments that was done was actually to go look at, and I apologize if I get this pronounced wrong, but um, Omama, uh, the, the asteroid there. And why is this asteroid interesting? It's interesting for two reasons. First off, it's just a very different shape. So it's a very flat asteroid. This is a artist image. This is not an actual image of the asteroid, but this is an artist image based off of the data that we do have about it. So it's a very flat, elongated asteroid. And that's, that's somewhat unusual, but it's, it wouldn't have quite raised as many flags by itself. What really caught people excited about this was its path. So unlike a typical asteroid, which is coming in in a normal orbit around our solar system, this asteroid is actually coming in, uh, you can think of it as from above, if you want to think about our solar system in a plane, coming in down this way, and you can see this is a blow-up of the inner regions, coming in down below the sun, and then shooting out in the opposite direction. So in other words, this asteroid is not coming from within our solar system. So those two things combined together to say, you know, we've got a highly unusually shaped object, and we've got an object that's clearly not from our solar system, you know, Breakthrough Listen really wanted to look at it. It's exactly the type of object that may or may not have been paid attention to before um, until Breakthrough Listen came along. So the good news is they got a lot of data on it. The bad news is, again, you would have heard by now, but uh, they obviously didn't detect anything. So it turns out that this is genuinely just an asteroid. And in fact, just uh, two weeks ago, it was announced that the, uh, uh, the highest probability is what, can't, what happened with this asteroid is it's from a binary star system. And so these binary star systems, so you have two stars circling around each other, and they make some pretty weird... Um, gravitational potential when you do that. And so it was supposed that these, these types of star systems actually have the highest probability of ejecting their asteroids out of it. So it probably came from a binary star system. We don't know from where. We'd need a lot more information. It needs to come back again, and maybe we could figure it out. But, um, but it was definitely one of our um, excellent opportunities we've had with SETI, and we've had a few of these types of things where an unusual phenomena comes along, and we've gotten a chance to look at it thanks to the Breakthrough um, Foundation. So finally, I'm just going to end with this slide here to just let you guys know a little bit more about what's going on with the Breakthrough Listen and what they're, what they're trying to do. It's a, it's a really neat, really exciting plan that they have together to try to go and, and systematically, as I said, go out and look at a variety of different objects, primarily stars. And they're doing this um, across the widest frequency range that's ever been done. So again, from about 0.2 to 116 gigahertz using everything the GBT has. And equally as interesting, what they're doing is they're repeating their observations. 
So typical SETI observations haven't gotten a lot of telescope time, so they've gone and done the, the quick look that they can do, but they haven't been able to go back. So what if somebody's transmitting, but they just weren't pointed towards us at the time? So they're going back over and over again, repeating these to get both more sensitivity, but also in order to increase the, um, the likelihood of detecting something. And the way they've set this up is they're looking first within the, the, the nearest five parsecs for what they call Earth leakage. So these are the stars that are actually close enough to us that we can just kind of hear them if they're transmitting, not towards us, but we can hear their, their um, FM antennas. We can hear their, their radio, their TV broadcasts. We can hear anything like that. So they wouldn't have to be trying to transmit to us or trying to do anything special in order for us to hear those, the, anything around those stars. Then you move out to about 50 parsecs, and they're looking at about 100 stars of every type that they can, they can find within there. Now, these are areas where if we're actually going to detect this, they have to have something um, powerful. They have to have something like an Arecibo-like radar system. But we have an Arecibo-like radar system, so they might. But then we're going to go ahead, and, and Breakthrough Listen is going ahead and expanding that all the way out to the 100 million nearby stars. And even um, just because it's, it's worth a shot to some of the 100 nearby galaxies. And they're doing this again just to try and get a good feel for what might be out there. Remember, the farther out you go, the more um, the, the, the quieter the signal is, the more sensitive you have to be. But we don't know what kind of civilization might be out there. And so it's by far the best shot that we have to go out and try to do this. And it's certainly going to give us um, a lot of interesting scientific results. And it's certainly going to give us by far the best chance that we have in order to do that. So thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute.